Welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm Natasha Mirosh. And I'm Sam Donsky. Between us, we've toured and tasted our way around more than 60 countries. Join us now as we meet the passionate people who make travelling the world so rewarding and so very delicious. Hey, Sam. Hey, Natasha. Sam, you know, I'm a mad keen fermenter. I've usually got something bubbling away on my bench top most times, but I'm an amateur compared to our next guest. Yes, fermenting is huge right now. The microbes in fermented foods are so good for our gut health, but of course they are also, well, (laughs) the microbes, I don't know that they're delicious, but uh, (laughs) the fermented foods themselves are also very delicious. Right. But there can be a lot of anxiety around fermenting at home, mostly around food safety, and there are lots of questions about best practice. Mm. And our guest today, Sharon Flynn of The Fermentry, workshop facilitator and author of Ferment for Good, Ancient Foods for the Modern Gut, has the answers. She also has a great story about how she came to be so deeply immersed in the fermenting worlds. Yeah, we love a good story and Sharon's has it all. Welcome, Sharon. Hi. Thanks for joining us, Sharon. We've been hearing so much lately about the importance of gut health and how fermented foods can help with all kinds of gut issues. It seems like such a simple and natural fix. And personally, I've done a little beginner fermenting myself, so I'm really looking forward to learning more today. Let's start where it all began. How did you get into fermenting? Just, I'd say just a general curiosity that happened to be all under the umbrella of fermenting. Uh, I sort of didn't work that out until I was much older. But when I was younger, we travelled a lot uh, with my dad's work, as in we, we moved a lot. He was in the army. And when we moved overseas, I think I was just really interested in the things that were not clear what they were, what they were made of or how they were made. And I went to Denmark for a year as an exchange student. And then I, in my 20s, I lived in Japan. And, well, a lot of food is fermented in Japan. And they don't talk about it in the sense of fermented. It's, it's just, you know, part of their every ingredient in, in every meal. So I learned a lot about those things. And I never would have written home and said something like, I'm learning all about fermented food. <laughs> never. It was not a really part of my language then. It was just me, the name of the food. So natto or miso or sake, you know. And then when we moved to the States, I, I was a mum then and I was really into, I think I got into cheese making first. And I just thought it was a really cool hobby I think I wanted whey at one point and then the way to get whey was to make cheeses and then it just moved on from there. We moved to Seattle and that's when I joined a CSA and we ended up with a lot of abundance and we did a lot of pickling workshops around that. And then I got into sourdough as well because there wasn't a lot of good breads and it went from there, I guess. When I moved to Belgium, my youngest daughter was unwell, very unwell actually for extended period of time and at the end of that a friend told me oh you probably need to stop chasing that virus and replace all the bacteria in her gut and found a list of foods that would have naturally occurring bacteria in them and that's when I went oh my god these are all my hobbies that I've ever had (laughs) and then I knew I was like okay that's it I think when I was in Seattle I had met Sandor Katz who's the, you know, the original sort of yeah. revivalist. And he'd written this, um, he hadn't written the orange book yet, the one that a lot of people recognise. He'd written this one called Wild Fermentation. And that had really captivated me back then in Seattle. And I was just like, oh, my God, I can actually make change with this food in my own daughter's gut. Mm. And I did. So you started seeing change in, in your daughter's health? Yeah. I'd been six months trying to do as the doctor said and do what we thought would be best for her. And it was making her worse. If you've ever tried to take care of uh, someone like that and you're just very vulnerable and when you know deep down these things aren't helping, it's pretty alienating and you feel vulnerable. So when I had that list, all of a sudden I was like, well, these are things I can do. So for a start, it was giving me that feeling of I can do something that might help her. And that gave me some energy, but also I quickly saw that it was helping her because she went from a child that was getting these regular fevers and all kinds of stuff, but we were chasing that and trying to get rid of this. And then 
she at the end she couldn't really keep food down so her gut was completely ruined and then her gut brain connection was disconnected because she'd become almost like a depressed she was only five but she was depressed you know she had a blank look in her face and the doctors would say things like well maybe she has childhood eating disorder maybe mum has um, depression and it was very frustrating not to be heard and so we moved home to we were in Belgium for three years we moved home and I just started feeding those things to her and she kept them down and then I got a, a heap of gut health books so there was one back then called the GAPS diet gut and psychology syndrome mm. I think that was one of the first books out there on it and that's by Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride. <laughs> and it really explained it well. I didn't do that diet with her because I was newly a single mum and there were broths and all kinds of things. And so I just read and learned about the gut and I realised this fits what the pattern that we've experienced. So Lulu had gone from being a regular great eater to only really wanting simple carbohydrates and, and really loving those, you know, like just large shell pasta with a bit of butter on it. That was her thing. So I would just add a little bit of sauerkraut into the large shell pasta and then I would add water kefir when she woke up because it was a fizzy drink and she thought that was really, you know, like, oh, I'm having fizzy drink for breakfast. And she kept it down, but not only that, she started craving those things. Within three weeks she was waking up and saying, can I have my drink? And um, eating the sauerkraut plain, you know, with a fork on a plate and coming back to life really putting on weight and her energy came back and people around us saw that as well. And I was walking the, the dog with the other mums after drop off. And, you know, I was like evangelical to them about this and you know how it is. Everyone had something or a parent or someone who had something. And so they started going, can I have some crap? Let's see if that works. But this was, I mean, this was maybe eight years ago. So there wasn't a lot of information out there actually. You must have been so excited. You know, you almost forget at one point where you go, hang on a minute, this time, you know, a month ago, I was putting her down a grade. And I guess I've stood by this little mantra is just a little bit of uh, a wide variety of ferments regularly. Mm -hmm. That was what I aimed for with her because that's the best I could do. And it it was enough, you know, it, it changed her gut. And it, it sort of inspired me. And, and also because I was busy and I, I started working, I hadn't worked for 15 years. I was a stay-at-home mum and travelling like we, we were. But when I went back to work, I also noticed I couldn't actually buy the products that I wanted. I had to keep making them. So that's also when I was like, no one's making this. And people don't know the difference between pasteurised, like the sauerkraut that you get on the shelf mm. and the sauerkraut that I was making, which needed to go in the fridge. So how did you transition from just making these products for your family, doing it commercially? God, I only feel right now that I'm, I would call myself commercial, you know, it's (laughs) been a a lovely, slow growth. So I started off doing, I think I started with like a 10 litre crock that I had, that I brought back from, from Belgium. And I had a couple of other crocs from, you know, my collections over the years. So I was just doing quite large amounts, really to fill those crocs. And so I was able to share those people would I'd give jars away. And then word, as I said, word got around. And originally I was just doing it as a bit of a favor because I felt so relieved and grateful that I'd found this at the time that someone would say, my mum's going through chemo. Do you think that would help? I'd be like, I don't know. You know, I'm not a doctor, but I'll drop some off on the way to driving my daughter to choir or, you know, and I'd go in and then they'd tell me their story and how, how well it made them feel or something. And there just became these regular drop-offs to people. So I just would make things for them with them in mind. So it started off sort of more familial and they would pay me just so it, to cover my costs. And then I started making more and more because I couldn't make enough. And, you know, so I got a larger shredder and larger crocs and which is a note to anybody who's doing that. When you use larger crocs and you fill them and you put the weights on, you can't move them. <laughs> so I used to just do it on the kitchen bench and be like, oh my gosh, I cannot move this off. It has to stay there now until I jar it up. And then because you have to refrigerate these products to keep them 
where they're at, you know, so they don't keep fermenting. I got a couple of secondhand fridges and, you know, it just grew to the point where one day I sort of looked and went, oh my God, I'm, this is getting crazy. I've got like four fridges in the garage and two in the office, which was weird because who has a fridge in their office and, you know, carpeted office. And because I was also doing a water kefir and milk kefir. And then I started doing goat's milk and cow's milk kefir because some people could only do goats. And, you know, I was just accommodating to anyone who wanted anything. And I, I was really doing it out of uh, the spirit of, you know, oh my gosh, nobody seems to know about this. This worked for me. And I didn't intend to become a business. I thought maybe I should teach people how to make it themselves. And so I started doing that. But at the end of every, you know, at, at that time, most of these people had something like a child with autism or, a ch- you know, mm. they were all very like, I hope this can fix my, my mum or my child, whatever. And at the end of the teaching session, it just was so sad. You know, they were like, oh, how much should I take? So they hadn't been oh. listening. They're just like, give me that. Yeah. And then I'd be like, well, you don't take, this is a food. Mm. And so it was around about that time that I remembered, you know, I looked for things on the shelf. I wanted to buy it. I was tired and exhausted and vulnerable as well. And I re- recognized that I could actually tell them anything or sell them anything. Yeah. Because when you are in that sort of vulnerable, exhausted, hopeful state, mm. Mm. you want anyone to tell you it will sell mm. you something you do. Yeah. So I really, it was really, it was a deep lesson, I think, in that. And I was just like, I don't want to do that. So what I'm going to do is I'll just make it for you, but I need to make it so delicious so that you don't think of it as taking, my God, mm. you've got to add it to your food. Like what's happened here? You know, in Australia, we, we lost a lot of our traditional foods, but no matter where we've come from, even Indigenous Australia, you know, there has been fermenting. Wherever we've had agriculture, we've had to preserve it. So we've all had some kind of ferments in our life until only just recently, so the last, say, two generations. And we dropped it because we didn't really need to preserve abundance that way anymore and we lost the skills a little bit and maybe we, we sort of, it's the same as that really cheap sliced white bread you know, with margarine. There was a whole era where we thought that was almost a miracle. It's like, such, look at that. Yeah, Nothing such, ever goes bad. You know, yeah, such bread progress. Never, yeah. <laughs> the bread never gets So great. And the bread's soft. Yes, yeah. so soft, right? So there was that era that we went through and we can't really blame ourselves for it. I mean, but with a lot of things in our lives now, at the moment, we're all going, wait a minute. Not all, in, you know, inventions are progress, are they? But they're sort of taking us backwards perhaps. So yeah. that's where I was then. I was really like, no, I'm going to make it delicious. And so I stood by and that, that sort of is my whole business now that, because I wild ferment, which means we are doing it against the grain. I'd like to know what it is exactly about fermented food and drinks that makes them so good for the gut. We hear a lot about it, but not necessarily why. Yeah. Well, first off, there's not a lot of wilderness in our lives anymore. When you're talking about wild ferments that you might make at home, it is a, it's a wilderness. We're not adding that farmed bacteria in. It's happening by itself. So that, for one, is, is pretty um, special, I think. But for the other, then you've got a wide range of bacteria. So when you take a probiotic, generally it will list three or five different strains of bacteria in it. When you're using a wild ferment, you might have up to 30. So we've got the probiotics, which which let's just talk about that. At the moment in our guts, probably since the 1940s, we've started this slow and very uh, enthusiastic war on bacteria. As soon as we found out that bacteria, you know, we called it a, a germ and it could cause virus and we started viruses and we started washing our hands killing any bacteria on surfaces in our mouths with with Listerine. We just went nuts over it and not knowing either that, you know, when you say take like Listerine, it's not just one kind of bacteria that you're killing. You're wiping out the whole natural environment in your mouth and then it has to get in there again somehow because that's the natural balance of your body, your skin and inside you and wiping it out. So ordinarily you might get bacteria, you know, in the past through soil and through your animals and all different ways and in your food. But in the last hundred years, we have decided to become very clean. And and because we industrialized our food system, everything's been heated and processed so that it doesn't have any bacteria. So it can be stored for longer. It can be 
shipped all around the place and put in a supermarket and last on the shelves looking good. So there's that element that we're not actually naturally putting bacteria into our bodies. But back to your story. So you pretty much had a cottage industry at this stage, making ferments in your home Mm. kitchen. How did it develop from there? Yes, I decided the, the tasty thing was really important and to talk about it as food. And actually, there were, it was just word was getting out. And there were one day, a couple of guys I had a very long driveway and I got home and there were two guys in the driveway and they're like, is this the sauerkraut? Are you the sauerkraut lady? And I was like, oh, yes. And we had this, you know, I left the fridge, the garage door open so people could come in and put money in a jar. It was an honesty box thing. And I realized, oh, this is getting a bit invasive. And I had three daughters at home. So I went to the local health food store and asked if we could do some kind of a swap. People would have to call me and I'll put their name on a label in that fridge. Mm. And then he'd give me a little tab and then I'd just get groceries in exchange. And then my dad used to be like, are you even writing it down? I was like, no, I'm just (laughs) trusting him. I don't know. But it was always getting, got to the point where it was like $800 just always there. (laughs) And I'd say to the girls, we're rich, you know, we can have any food we like, but it was um, a tiny little shop. (laughs) You know, a couple of people who had restaurants went in there and one of them was Ala Wolf-Tasker who has the lake house and dairy flats out in Dalesford. And she's she's a Russian heritage. So she called and said, can I have the milk kefir? And I'm not a food, like I hadn't lived in Melbourne ever in my life and certainly not really in tune with chefs and very into our chefs here in Australia and I hadn't experienced that before. So I was just like, no, no, I go into <laughs> Melbourne, but I don't go out to Dalesford. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and then I was telling the staff at um, Candlebark where I was working, they were like, oh my God, you should definitely drive out there. She has a big hotel. And I was just like, yeah, it's just not the direction I go, either, you know. <laughs> and then the next time she called, I, I was like, okay, I'll go out there and have a look. And I guess she just convinced me. So I think we had the water kefir and the milk kefir on the menu at the cafe on Wombat Hill. And then she had it, she would give it to certain customers in the hotel. And then a couple of them had restaurants and then they called and sort of really like your water kefir. And one of them had was in Sydney. And I was just like, what? No (laughs) way. How am I even going to get it there? But, you know, it's kind of exciting. I remember the first time they ordered, I just drove to Sydney. I I drove it to Sydney. (laughs) It's just ridiculous. I was like, oh, you know, road trip, let's go. And it was only two boxes, but I took it there and, you know, that was pretty fun. And it just grew like that. It's really lovely to hear that grew really just very naturally, didn't it? It's a lovely story. It, It did shape, it shaped the business, the vibe of it, you know, to, to stay small. And I, I think I, I sat on that for a while. When I was growing, you know, I, I started off just buying ingredients where I could. I wasn't all about, oh, and a connection with my farmers. It wasn't like that. It was just like, where do I get this ingredient and try and find where I could buy it. But when you scale, so if you go from buying small packets of sugar to say 20 kilos, but then you realize, oh, it's a hassle getting 20 kilos. I might get a pallet. That's when you realise how sick the industrialised processed food industry is because it's all about really tight dollars and bottom line and not about the consumer or the farmer. So it was really a big shock to go from just a a mum who loved food and wanted to do make good food at home to wanting to make good food in a large scale and going, I want Australian sugar but I need organic Oh, you can't get that. So back then we've only just got organic Australian sugar. Mm. So before that we had to import it. So then I'd be like, well, maybe I should just get non-organic sugar. But how will the industry change if there's no demand? You know, so it's all these little things. And same with the garlic. There's a lot of garlic in kimchi. And I want that because that's good for us. We need garlic and we need organic garlic. and has to be grown in Australia. But to peel that was just such a big problem yeah. as we grew yeah. I tried a lot of different things like giving boxes to stay-at-home mums you know but that'd take eight hours to you know it'd be like a hundred dollars for the peeling of it and that wasn't going to work and then one farmer told me oh I'll send it to you peeled and I was like great and actually how do you do it is there a machine I should buy and he was like no no we send it off to China oh, I was like well, uh, what? <laughs> and then I realized there's so many of our foods that all kinds of food that might be grown here shipped away and peeled or pulped or, you know, 
processed and then sent back. So we're Sorry. living in blissful mm. ignorance, I think, yes. most of us. And it sounds like we could do a whole yeah. podcast just on <laughs> just on that subject. Yes, it's pretty concerning. Yeah. yeah. It's sort of concerning, but we're in a good place. I think there's a yeah. lot of knowledge uh, available and people are quite interested. So there's this drive now with Know Your Farmer and Buy Local. And I think it's a good time to be alive because we've, we've got knowledge widely available so we can change it. Time's running out. <laughs> that, that's the vibe at the moment, isn't it? With, yeah. with soil and all of that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. Sharon, where is the best place for a beginner to start fermenting? What are the easiest ferments to make? Um, well, it's with vegetables, I think. Milk kefir is uh, very, very powerful and good if you've got a particularly bad gut and you don't mind milk. I think that's an easy routine to get into. Can I, can um, I jump in there yep. and just ask you to explain, for those that aren't familiar with kefir, what, what yeah. that is? Yeah, so you might be familiar with kombucha. Yes. Well, a lot of the stuff, unfortunately, on the market is just a nod to, to what kombucha really is. It's a little bit of kombucha and a whole lot of other stuff that if you look on the back, you go, oh, what, why is this actually called healthy? Because in, in all of these drinks, actually, there's alcohol, even sauerkraut. There's like a 0.8% alcohol in the sauerkraut juice because that's what fermentation does. You know, wine is fermented and anywhere there's any sugar and bacteria eating that and yeast, there'll be a small amount of residual alcohol. Kefir is a very similar product to kombucha. Kombucha is made with tea and sugar and a scoby and water kefir is made with sugar and water and a scoby. And they're very different kinds of scobies and they're very different in nature. Kombucha is very full of acetic acids like a vinegar, whereas Water kefir is more bacterial, so there's a lot of lactic acid bacteria in that. So I think it's gentler. It's still really um, low in uh, low pH and sour, but not not like kombucha. They're different balance of bacteria and yeast. I think we have to also probably explain what a scoby is. Yeah. They're quite revolting yeah. looking, honestly, aren't they? No, I like them. No, you so like them. The, yes. <laughs> but you'll have to come and visit the fermenter and they've sort of named all the mothers and you get to see which one's really active and which one's producing more and, you know, you get quite fond of them. The, the word scoby is just a, it stands for symbiotic colony or community of bacteria and yeast. And that is a, what would you call that, a poly, polysaccharide matrix. And it forms naturally. So with kombucha, if you buy a really good bottle of kombucha, you can make your own kombucha mother with it just by pouring that into a little jar, covering it with a little cloth and putting it in the dark and leaving it and trying to forget about it. And over, you know, three or four weeks, you'll come back and there'll be like a gelatinous little covering over the top and that's your scoby that's your mother water kefir doesn't you need to have water kefir grains to make water kefir and these are things similar to yogurt cultures that we have handed down for generations and generations miraculously really that we you know we still have them in the world but the reason milk kefir and water kefir have the same name even though they're very different products one's water and one's milk is that they have a very similar bacterial breakdown so the, people get confused. There's a lot of milk kefir in the supermarkets these days. That wouldn't be made with a scoby. I'd say that would be made with bacteria similar to yogurt. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that if you can get a scoby, the, the milk kefir that you make with a scoby is way superior in every way, flavour, texture, and um, bacterial breakdown. You know, maybe there'll be 30 different kinds or 50 different kinds and it'll change depending. So if I gave you one of our scobies, milk kefir scobies, once you had it in your house for a month or two, if we tested them again, they'd be a little bit different. You know, the basis would be the same, but they they change depending on what milk you're using, how long you've met them for, the temperature in your room, the yeast and bacteria in your house, that kind of stuff. And that's where that wild element comes into it because I think that's a very, it's a very strong way to get bacteria into your body. And people who start drinking homemade milk kefir, if they have got, you know, if they've got some problems, you know, they've been on Nexium for a while, for example, or they've got reflux or they've had a tummy bug, you know, when you drink milk kefir that you make yourself, you feel the difference almost immediately. 
And that's one of the things that people say, actually, no matter what I tell them, like this is not a medicine, it's not a quick fix, it's a lifestyle. You need to keep putting bacteria into your body. Just like you take a tablet, a probiotic, you have to take it all the time. You also need to eat fermented food all the time because what goes in goes out. But people always say to me, what, what shall I, you know, come on, just tell me which is the best one. I'd say milk. I don't like to say that because I'm against it. You know, I'm against the whole take it thing. Yeah. But milk kefir is pretty powerful stuff. So getting a, getting hold of a scoby is, and they grow. Once if I gave you one little mother, like the size of your thumbnail, you'd have five or six within about three weeks. And so you you don't need that many. You can hand them around. Do you keep them in the fridge or not? <clears throat> so you definitely <laughs> shouldn't keep a kombucha scoby in the fridge. Right. I always get a bit of a shock when I see mm. kombucha kits in health food stores in the fridge mm. because you're killing off some of the really important yeasts mm. or putting them to sleep and they might not wake up. So right. a lot of the time if you have a kombucha scoby that's been stored in the fridge, you'll get it home, you'll make a brew, it'll work, that's great, and it'll work for maybe five rotations and then all of a sudden you'll get a layer of mold on the top. And that's because it, some of the yeast, the protective yeasts just were actually dead and you needed them. So definitely wouldn't keep a kombucha scoby in the fridge. I would keep it in the cupboard and let it build. It's fine. Right. But with the water kefir and the milk kefir, you can pop them in the fridge. I would prefer to put mine in the freezer because then you're, if, you, if you're doing a really great job with it, you know, and it's just everything's going perfectly with the grains and you like to keep it that way, then you should freeze it because putting bacteria and yeast in the fridge does slow them down a little bit. In your book, A Recipe for Fermented Corn on the Cob, which sounds really amazing, but I would never yes. have thought to, to ferment corn unless I was planning to make some kind of bootleg hooch or something. <laughs> what are some of the stranger or more surprising ferments you've made or, or tasted? Well, the corn does come up a lot. People seem to be surprised by that, but there's a lot of sugar in corn. So any veggies that have sugar ferment really well. Veggies that have a lot of chlorophyll, like kale and broccoli, not so much. You can still ferment them, but we're going for delicious. There's no point fermenting something just because you can, right? So I think some of the surprising ones, I really love fermenting okra. And when you ferment it, keeps the slime but it gets fizzy as well which is probably people are like yeah no I don't want that slime and fizzy I've been trained to not like that yeah but I I think we we use a byproduct so our kimchi juice because when you when you're fermenting your veggies a lot of the water will fall from it the juices and so you get that as a byproduct and you definitely need to keep that it's powerful it's delicious you can um, do all kinds of marinating or just sipping it and um, making other dressings and things with it so I, you know, we have a lot of it. So I started using the kimchi juice as a brine and I brined some okra and I think I might have been the only one who liked it. <laughs> a couple of years ago I started doing broad beans and kidney beans and they ferment beautifully. I think they're a rather surprising thing um, to ferment. Well, that's a Cheers. couple of things to put on my list. Sharon, yeah. I know a lot of people are actually afraid of fermenting and they have a lot of questions. We've crowdsourced a few for you. So let's start with this. Probably the greatest concern, isn't fermenting dangerous? Can you get food poisoning or even worse, could it kill you? How do you do it safely? Yeah, I have no idea why people say that. So we don't get questions like that about making cakes, do we, really? Like people don't get that, can it kill you? It's sort of more don't eat the raw batter if it has raw eggs in it. But with fermenting, people tend to be so frightened. And that's just come from the last 100 years where we've been told bacteria is bad. I'd say actually there's never been anybody um, reported to be sick, made sick or um, die of sauerkraut. Unlike sort of sprouts and things like that where you can get all kinds of, you know, bad bugs. So, no, I don't think it can kill you and I don't think you should be afraid of it. Just keep in mind that we've been preserving food and been making things with raw milk, you know, cheeses and yogurts and all of the different ways we preserve vegetables in really rough rudimentary kitchens. You know, we we do them in wooden barrels think back hundreds of years, how long we've been making things like beer and wine and um, sauerkraut. 
and think about the kitchens we have now and the good quality salt that we have and the clean water. So no, there's nothing to be afraid of. The only thing that, the only reason we're afraid of it is perhaps we haven't ever watched as a small child our family member doing this. So we feel it's quite foreign. We don't really have that connection to fermented food. It's more dangerous to not have it in your life, actually. Yeah, and there's scarier things in Mm. our fridge probably. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yep. And here's another question about some terminology that's um, a bit curious. There seem to be two kinds of ferments anaerobic and aerobic presumably that means ones that need exposure to the air and others that don't yes. is that is that correct yeah and there's some that can be either <laughs> so milk milk kefir is one of those they don't it doesn't matter if you do it aerobically or anaerobically mm. kombucha is aerobic you put a cloth over it and actually what it does is it, it grows its scoby to cover the surface area of the vessel effectively making it anaerobic mm. because the tea underneath it is anaerobic and the, the mother is what's covering it and, and taking care of it. It's fascinating, actually. It is. Now, I've admitted this before on another episode of Extra Virgin Podcast that I keep forgetting to use up the fermented veggies that I've already made and have in my fridge. So I'm pleased someone else wow. asked. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. And I'm, I, really, I really picked up on the thing you said that yeah, you can't do this every now and then. You you actually need to make this a part yes. of your of your diet. So I'm I'm I've already filed that away to make sure I <laughs> go Good. and do something about this. But we did have a, a question, and it's a bit of a two parter. How long can you keep fermented foods in the fridge, and does their age affect the health benefits? Yes, you can keep them indefinitely, really, as long as you keep them clean. So because this is a living thing. If you say go to the fridge and you've got a bit of sour cream on the fork or who knows, and you add that in, even for five seconds, that can destroy your little balance that you've got. It's, it's, it's all balanced inside the jar. So that can ruin it. So things can go wrong, particularly if you've got bits and pieces of sauerkraut all on the edges of the glass and they're exposed to more air than they should be. So try and keep it all, all neat in the jar and pressed down. But don't be fanatical. Don't forget, like I said earlier, that we've been doing this for a long time and very, you know, if you watch an old Russian nana in her kitchen or, you know, you go to China and and watch how comfortable they are for sticking their hands into vats and, you know, pulling things out, you'll realise, oh, okay, we're we're at one with nature. And in this case, we're all together. We've all got bacteria and yeast on us, including the food, so we're all at one. So, all right, let's say sauerkraut, you know, once you open the jar, let's give it a month or two. Mm. Really, it might start changing within that time. But if you've made the sauerkraut uh, and you're keeping it in the vessel or you've got it in the fridge and you don't open it up, you've got years. Mm. So, however, there have been a lot of tests now since the gut-brain connection and gut health and the importance of, of having good gut health has come to the forefront. There's been a lot of tests around different products. So I can't say for every product, but let's just use kimchi or sauerkraut as an example. And at about six weeks, the vitamin C goes up and it's really at its height and it will stay like that for a good few months and it'll start to, it'll start to peter out a little bit. So I'd say that the younger you eat it in that way, so between anywhere from two weeks to six months is the best health benefits. I actually just finished fermenting some this morning, in fact, and had it for breakfast straight out of the jar before it even got to the fridge. So I've already eaten quarter of a jar on my my zucchini fritters this morning. (laughs) That's great. The best way to make sure you can easily get all this life inside you and rewild your gut is to have a variety. So don't just make one flavor. See if you can, now you've made that one, Keep your eye out or think about what would you like to eat with, say, a taco? And is it jalapeno kraut, for example? Or do you need something smoky or do you need something? And try and formulate your recipes so that you will feel like putting it with that dish. And here's another question. It's from (laughs) Carrie. Thanks so much, Carrie. Are all ferments created equal? And are there ferments that are higher in probiotics or have better gut health benefits than others? Well, no, they're not all equal, but like I said, they all have their own values. So just eating one kind is not going to do the magic that having, say, say yogurt and or milk kefir or your macadamia nut cheese, for example, we need a variety. So 
don't think of it like that, Carrie. Think of it like I think wild ferments, definitely better than starter culture ferments. And and I could rant on about that for a while. So <laughs> go the wild. Don't buy vegetable starter cultures. You know, there's been a typical oh corporate style bullying to make the the health food food and health safety laws in Australia to say that this is the safest way, you know, and it, it just that if anything is going to make me wildly angry, it's it's thinking about that, you know, humans have been fermenting for a very long time, but all of a sudden we have to buy a lab-based bacteria mm. that's also in yogurt and cheese and isn't wild, wide. We don't have a diverse array of bacteria in these starter cultures and they exist so naturally, you know. I guess in a way you could follow the same advice that we do with, with eating is to eat the rainbow. We can follow that same advice yes. with ferments, eat the widest yes, variety but, of, mm. of ferments that you can. That's right. I mean, like I said, milk kefir is the, the most bang for your buck as far as energy, how much work it takes, how easy it is to learn, it's easy to get a routine. You need a routine for these things. Like all of the scobies, they need to be fed and kept alive. So there needs to be a, you know, put it there three days later, it's ready, make it again, make it again like that. Whereas if you make a batch of sauerkraut, you could make enough for three months and forget about it. So it depends what you want out of your life. So I would recommend if you're really tired, like if I go back to, oh, what, what would I have liked someone to make me eight years ago for Lulu, it would be milk kefir and a really beautiful, easy to eat sauerkraut. They are two very powerful ferments that are um, easy to eat and enjoyable and you can put them with a lot of things. So they're really good. Natto, Japanese beans, the stringy beans, they're like okra with the textures quite slimy. They are also a powerhouse. So that's the level up. That would be like, you're ready for this. You know, I <laughs> recommend <graduated>. that. <laughs> yeah, I recommend that for anyone because that's very good for your, your, your gut. It's very hard to get that bacteria anywhere else. Yeah. Most people would mm. know what sauerkraut tastes like, even if they don't eat it regularly. Most people will have tried it. What mm. does milk kefir taste like? Yummy. It's, let's just equate it with like a drinking yogurt. Mm. It's amazing because if, even if you make it with, you know, the cheapest sort of cow's milk, it can get this sort of sheepy, goaty flavour about it. It can sometimes get sort of a hay, a bale of hay smell aroma. Do you know what I mean? So that's what that tastes like. I don't know if I've made it sound delicious now. No, it's no, like actually you haven't. Wild drinking yogurt. <laughs> no, I don't know. No, I'm interested Barnyard. because I like all of those things, like feta and goat's cheese and things. So I, I think you just as long as you prepared that and hay. <laughs> well, Most of the time it just smells like beautiful fresh yogurt with a bit more of a yeasty smell. Okay. Here's another question that comes up frequently. What's the best equipment for fermenting? I know Natasha has mm. a big crock, but I've also just used standard glass jars with screw top lids. What, what's the best kit to start with? The best kit is the one you have in your kitchen right now. Yeah. I love gathering lovely accoutrements for things, but you don't need those things. Mm. So going back to what we used hundreds of years ago, sadly, we probably don't go out to the shed and grab the pickle barrel anymore. We don't have those things. So using a jar would be great. If you've got a great bucket, you know, the BPA free and food friendly bucket, you could even use that. Mm. So don't let not having the right equipment affect you. Uh, what you, depending on the ferment, for example, let's think of you're going to make a, a batch of sauerkraut and you've got an old ice cream, you know, or a, a yogurt tub kind of thing. You could use that. What we want to do is make sure that the cabbage, so these are anaerobic ferments. So you want to make a system so that the cabbage doesn't get any oxygen, but it has a way to let the oxygen out. So if you're just using a jar with a lid, you'll need to open and close that lid now and then. Mm. Otherwise, it'll all rise and fizz and burst out and, and make a bit of a mess. It's not going to be poisonous, though, or terribly ruined, but it'll just be a little messy and annoying. Mm. So let's go from that, or if you just had a tub with no lid, then you want to make sure that you weigh the kraut down so much that it's under the brine, and you'd need, like, the brine is just the water and the salt that comes from within the cabbage. We're not really adding any water. But when you start massaging sauerkraut, it gets very juicy. And so there'll be a lot of juice and you want that juice to cover the cabbage. And you could just cover that bucket with a towel and keep an eye that the juice is, is over the kraut. 
So you need to weigh the kraut down with, say, a plate and something very heavy to keep it under the brine. And the brine is then your protector. So you can, it can be as basic as that. But a beautiful crock made by a local ceramicist or something that you've bought in Poland or you can, you can, you can buy those all over the place now, they are a beautiful thing to have, you know, no doubt. And, and even I, I do like, I really love the sound of a good airlock system. I don't think I'm a controlling person. I don't have attention to detail. But in that respect, when I make a batch of anything, I really want to get some kind of indication or communication from the thing that it's working, you know. I always say there's an element of hope in all of these things. Mm-hmm. So you make it, same with a cake, you know, you make it and you're like, I hope that works, right? But with an airlock, when it starts to bubble, then you're like, okay, it's working. There's bacteria, it's eating the sugar, it's turning it to gas, and the sound of the gas escaping is that sound that you're going to get through your airlock. That's a great feeling. I have this theory that garlic honey is taking over from sourdough fermentation as the the on-trend fermentation at the moment. It just seems to be everywhere. And basically, it's just garlic cloves fermented in honey. But one of the questions that's come through is, why do the cloves turn blue and are they okay to eat? Mm. That's just a reaction when it oxidises or it's exposed to air. It's fine to eat. I think it's to do with how you've peeled it. Something like that. A while ago when I was first doing this, I read about it. I can't remember exactly why that happens, but it's not, it's not a bad thing. There's a lot of people who would be more worried about botulism and things like that than, than why the garlic going blue. And I also don't worry about that. So, But with, when it comes to raw honey and raw garlic together, some people would say that is like a botulism nightmare. So just be aware with that one, not to give it to anyone under one year old and you should be fine. I feel as though the bacteria used to really look after you and make you safe. And we haven't heard of anyone, like I said, dying of any of these ferments ever. Yeah. So I was going to talk about that before. I love honey as a fermenting medium mm. for beginners as well, because most people have honey in their cupboard. Yeah. You'd want a nice, good raw honey. So look out for raw because if it's been heated, it might have come from somewhere else and it'd be mixed with corn syrup and all kinds of nasty. Well, they're not nasty. They're just not honey. But I I love to put, I've got a little bit of honey into a little glass jar. I can put some blackberries or even peach slices or nectarines or anything in that. And that will not only preserve the fresh fruit, but it'll go into the honey and the honey gets watery and pourable, very liquidous and tastes like nectarines. And that's a really nice thing to pour over porridge in the winter, like a little bit of summer in the the winter or like blackberry honey, delicious. So you just cover the the slices of the fruit with the honey? Yeah, so you'd have more honey to fruit Mm. ratio for sure. So if I had, say, a cup of honey, I might put whole uh, you know like cut up a whole peach and put in there Mm. usually I use nectarines actually Mm. and yeah that's one of the kids favorite actually that it preserves the nectarine to be almost like canned peaches do you know that yellow Mm. soft canned peaches and that's the compliment my kids give me oh it's just like canned (laughs) (laughs) but anyway never mind Do you, yeah. How long do you ferment that for? You leave it open and ferment it that way? No, that one I put, you put the lid on, but just beware that the first week or two it can get very active. You need to leave headroom in any of your ferments, you know, a good inch between the top of your ferment and the lid so that it doesn't rise up with the gas and, and, and burst out. Make sure to do that. Yeah. That I've, I've left, I've got garlic honey that's like three, four years, five years old actually. And it gets dark and rich and balsamic-like and the garlic gets creamy and soft and the honey's just, you know, very garlicky. It's good to drizzle over things. Yeah, what do you Um, like to drizzle that garlic honey over? uh, I do cheeses. Uh, Anything I'm making. Lately I've been popping it into fried rice as like a teriyaki, you know, with Mm. soy sauce, garlic you know, that sweetness that comes through with the garlic, that's pretty good. I used to talk about it with blue cheese and, you know, meats, but not so much anymore. Well, you're sparking I my that imagination for, a while. for sure. Mm. But yeah, I've got some ideas there. Yeah, you can do it with ginger and chilies. You can you can put anything in honey and, and see what happens. <laughs> 
We have another question uh, where they've asked if you have any recommendations for kid-friendly ferments and how you get kids to move on to the taste of, if they they haven't had it before. Mm. Yes. All right. I'd say making like a, if you've got kombucha or water kefir, you can make those into icy poles or milk kefir. I would make, you know, like in a smoothie, add a third of it, you know, a third of it would be instead of just milk, you'd put milk kefir. And then sweeten that up with yummy like maple syrup and cinnamon and banana or whatever and make it into a smoothie. If they don't like the smoothie, make it into an icy pole. They should like that and give it yeah. to them for breakfast. Yeah. And they think they're lucky. They're like, <laughs> oh, what? And you're like, ha, 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 ha. Or yeah. with milk kefir too, I like to um, infuse, make butter out of the cream or creme fraiche by putting the milk kefir in there for a few days and turning that to butter. And they'll eat that butter in easily, not knowing that they're eating heaps of bacteria which is good for them and then brined veggies like pickles so brine is when I talked about brine with sauerkraut and that's just the water that comes from the cabbage but when you brine something that's mixing salt with water and fermenting in that water and doing carrot sticks like that is probably a really easy one for um, kids so it's just say one liter of water and you do two tablespoons of salt for one liter of water stir that up and then pour that over a jar of carrot slices, whether you do rounds or sticks and then some kind of flavours in that. So maybe a bit of what you think that they would like, like ginger or garlic or mustard seeds and coriander maybe, something gentle. And maybe don't ferment it for too long for a kid Mm. because I would start with maybe three days so that's and then the next day that same jar will be four days old and give it to them again. And then when you see them going, this is sour, stop, put it in the fridge mm-hmm. and give them the sour, a little bit sour carrots or, you know, until the jar's done, then try again mm. um, until it gets fully, fully sour and they like sour. Most kids love sour. I mean, babies in high chairs, I've seen so many with a big thing of sauerkraut just on the high chair tray, eating it by the fistful. Mm. And I think it's the parents, I don't want to be a bully again, but it often... <laughs> Parents are like, ooh, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't think I like that. And the yeah. kids just join in. Mm. So don't warn them and be like, oh, this might be a bit sour. You might not like this. Don't yeah. do that. Just, yeah. just assume they will love it. Green beans are good, similar to carrots. They're delicious like that. Mm. Cauliflower, onions, any of those veggies, you can put them in a brine first. Just add them, add them to things. You know, if you've got a salad and you've got brined cauliflower or onions just put a few in there or Mm. add the brine to a dressing these are ways to get the you know bacteria into your your people Mm, Mm. good tips yes they are well i love this question thanks tracy it's something that i've wondered myself does fermenting change the carb count in foods because of course there can be quite a lot of sugar in the beginning in ferments Mm, yeah well of course the sugar is going to be taken out uh of a carrot because that's what the bacteria loves the sugar so i would say that would be lower but when it comes to eating vegetables and counting them as carbs i don't know i'm just sort of i don't think there's a i don't understand that really you know what i mean so what about in kombucha or something maybe take it well when we're talking about kombucha and and water kefir i know in water kefir there's only three percent of the sugar that we add is left there's a tiny amount of sugar left, but the kombucha that you might buy in the store has a lot of non-fermentable sugars in it now and a lot of other stuff. So have a look at the back because it's, it's quite different to what you might think. And one thing, if you're not making it and you're buying it, really you want to look for the ones that are maybe sold in a uh, wine shop that have like 1% alcohol because they're the really good thing. That there's, They're good. The ones that you can buy in the supermarket on the shelf, not even in the fridge, uh, you might as well buy juice or, you know, it's oh. it's not full of life. How can it be? You know, I keep saying if you, if you if I sent you a bottle of my water kefir and it took a week, it would explode upon opening, you know, like champagne mm. because it's full of life and it doesn't stop fermenting. We put it in the fridge to slow it down. So once you start making these things yourself, you understand it a little bit better and then you go, oh, okay, how can that possibly be? On the shelf, it's highly manufactured and processed now. And that's that's p- fine, you know, it's spreading the word, but it's not the quality that you probably think you're getting mm. it, when you, you make that move to be like, oh, I'm drinking kombucha, you know. Mm. You're probably not getting a great one if you're buying it from the shelf. Here's an interesting one. Does it make a difference what sort of salt you use? 
Yeah, I like to talk about salt. It, it doesn't really. I mean, quality ingredients are great, but it's better than nothing. So if you've got an iodine-rich salt, it still makes a good ferment. It's still fine. But what's the best salt? Yeah, Australian sea salt. That's what you want. Maybe a pink lake salt, depending on your, or, or you know, there's Murray River salt. Try and buy Australian because we are an island. We're surrounded by water. I wouldn't recommend Himalayan salt for the reason that we don't need to buy that. It doesn't add anything at all to our um, sauerkraut. It doesn't add any benefits and the negatives are so huge. When I was doing that whole process, when I was going from mum to producer, I have to buy pallets of salt. The first salt I bought was French sea salt and it was $5,000 for the pallet. (laughs) But I liked it. You know, that was the best. So get that. And then as that pallet got lower and I started thinking about what salt to use, I started researching. There's a lot of hype around, oh, you have to use this mineral-rich Himalayan salt. And also maybe we should use coconut water. And then I just looked into it. I was like, these are fads. And if we find a new fad, the farmers and the people on the plantations or in the mines, salt mine, once we drop that, they've cleared land for that for us. They've got their children working and there's all kinds of wrongs that are happening for our food fads. When you could just get Australian sea salt. Never thought of it from that, that angle before. Sharon, Dave asked a question about how to eat fermented foods. Can you give us a couple of examples of ways to get fermented food into your food. If you look at, say, kimchi, you can use a, a large dollop, make a cheese, toasted cheese sandwich that's, you know, kimchi cheese toasties, delicious, or fried rice with kimchi in it. It can be part of something else like that, but it's not the main meal. Yeah. Unless you are fermenting meat, you know, cheese is fermented. I love to add the brines to soups and a big, like, think of it as like if you've got a sort of starchy, like a potato and leek soup, for example, a big generous blob of sauerkraut in the middle of that changes the soup. It makes it more digestible, healthier and delicious. And, you you know, the soup's cool enough so it's not going to kill the bacteria. But you don't really want to cook your ferments because anything, anytime you take it over 40 degrees, the bacteria dies. Now, if you're eating a lot of fermented food and you just want it for the fibre and the, the taste, go ahead, cook it because it's delicious and it's still a food. But if you're eating it for the bacteria, then you, you want to keep it room temperature and serve it like that. So if you want to make an omelette, for example, you make the omelette and at the end, you make sure the sauerkraut's not straight from the fridge and icy cold, you know, bring it down to room temperature, pop it in. Anytime you're eating anything with any fats or oils, that's the best time to eat an acid, like a a sauerkraut or a kimchi or something like that, because it helps you digest those meats and get more out of your food. Okay. I'll just point out that Sharon has some great ideas in her book as well. So Mm. it's worth going and having a look there. Mm. Here's another unusual one. If you're allergic to dairy, can you consume lactoferments? So that's a different word. So lactic acid is a lactoferment and that's nothing to do with the milk. Lactose is a kind of sugar. And actually, if uh, when you're fermenting milk, that's the thing that gets eaten. So it's a very safe way to consume milk if you're lactose intolerant is to ferment it all the way out until it's sour then there's no more lactose left and you can go ahead and drink it and feel pretty good but lactic acid bacteria is not milk Mm. what about if your allergy is to whey then that's dairy as well so you need to um you can you know what i would recommend ferment the milk and then strain it out so you've got like labna and you get all the way out and then you've got the solid, which is very high in calcium and protein and stuff and you don't get the whey. Okay. I mean, mm. mm-hmm. uh, maybe that question was asked because there are quite a few recipes that would say to put whey yes. as the starter culture in your sauerkraut and that's not even a question when you're a wild fermenter. You don't need that and I wouldn't ever recommend that you okay. put whey in, in something. The only, the only way I would mm-hmm. recommend whey is is when you're making a soda, a wild soda, whey is fabulous because you can just add, say you've got a cup of berries, for example, could be anything. You sort of mash them up a little bit and then put them in some water with a little bit of sugar. And if you added, say, a quarter of a cup of whey, within three or four days, you'd have a beautiful sparkling soda. And I love to have whey on hand for that. You can just put them in, you know, like freeze them up in ice cube blocks and add a couple of ice cubes to a bottle of something sweet and it'll ferment. 
beautiful and sparkling, yeah. I tried fermenting potato skins once. The result was so disgusting. It was like a stinky Mm. slime. So I'm really interested in this question from Linda. Are there any foods that can't be fermented? And I'd like to know about some of your own disasters, Sharon, if there's anything you've experimented with that just went horribly Mm. wrong. (laughs) Why did you ferment potato skins? (laughs) Well, was that for in a sourdough? Were you using it? No, to start the I sourdough? I met a chef who does these potato chips that are just incredible. They taste like natural salt and vinegar chips. And he told me mm. that what he does is he ferments the potato skins, and then he dehydrates them and powders them, and he uses them as a seasoning with salt on the outside mm. of the chips. And they're just the, so you yeah, they're them, amazing. They're, they're amazing <laughs> chips. So I mm. tried to do it. I wonder if he ferments because also you could brine or ferment your potatoes for a day or two before you cook them, and that'll give you this lovely. It'll take a bit of the starch out and give you a lovely sour. Yeah, taste. I think the South Americans, maybe the Peruvians, do that, right? Mm. So what was the question was, is there anything you can't ferment? There are lots of things. Like I said earlier, maybe these really chlorophyll-rich foods like kale, you can definitely ferment them, but I don't like the outcome. So it's bitter, it's it's slimy, you know, why? You know, so fermenting isn't for everything. For kale, I'd say dehydrate it, make kale chips. That's delicious, you know, but if you want probiotic kale chips, well, then that's fine. You can add, you can dip them in sauerkraut juice and dehydrate them really low. Or, you know, there's all kinds of ways you can get probiotics onto foods that can't be fermented or, or can't be fermented deliciously. Can't we? I don't think there's anything. I think more likely is like, look at all the foods that fermentation has made the food edible like cacao and coffee and mm. tea all of these things wouldn't be edible without a fermentation process true what's the worst um, thing you've ever fermented personally we had sandor cats come to town and we decided to do an event called the sticky and stinky so we're like <laughs> let's get all those things like natto and you know things are stringy and stuff and ferment those and, and eat those and i wanted to do hairy tofu i don't know if you've ever seen is that the same as stinky tofu that they have in Taiwan? Yes, yes. I've smelt it. I um, haven't well, tasted it. You can it. <laughs> do different versions. Yeah, this one's mold. Like it grows, the hair can grow like as long as your little finger. Like it's long and beautiful looking, but you sort of go, why would you eat that though? And why would you that's, do it? That's exactly what I'm thinking now. <laughs> yeah. And I tried to do one that was, I was like, no, because I'm all about wild fermenting. You know, it's like, I won't buy the starter. I'll just do it the way they would have done it a long time ago. The bacteria would come from straw, like oat straw or rice straw, that kind of thing. And then you cover the, the tofu in that. So the first time I did it, it was disgusting and it did smell and I was We've got enough room in this house, but that was my youngest daughter was like, it's not worth it. That would (laughs) never be worth it. There's no way it could ever be delicious enough for that smell to be worth it. And then I ordered the bacteria from a friend in Taiwan and we did it again. And it got close to being that stinky. We fried it up and it was delicious, but still the verdict was all that smell, all that work, very little, you know, joy from her anyway. (laughs) Mm. So hairy tofu would be probably my stinkiest thing I've ever made. Okay. <laughs> now, if somebody is wanting to start out with some kombucha or kefir, David asks, where do you get the scoby and the kefir grains from to start your ferments? Mm, it's a good question. So there are anyone who gets into this loves to talk about it and share it. That's real. So you just type in your local area into Facebook fermenting group or Google that. And there should be some kind of avid group of people who will swap cultures. Even culture swap could be a good um, thing to type in. And because it's really lovely to hand these things on, that's the, that's the beautiful side of fermenting that we still have these things because they've been handed down. However, you want to make sure that that person has not had their kombucha scoby sitting in the fridge, for example, you know, just ask politely like how they did it or like companies like mine, we sell those things online and we, I feel like, you know, definitely the fermentary we're, we're small scale and we do things like we would at home. So it's sure you're safe with us. So if you're looking online, sort of make sure that 
that's what the company that sells them are doing. They're not refrigerating. You know? So we, with our milk kefir grains, we will pull them out of the vat the day that I send them to you, that kind of thing. So, but I think it's better if you can get them from a neighbor or someone down the road and then you make a new friend. Mm. That's a lovely note for us to probably wrap up today, mm. talking about community and how we can all help each other with these things. I was just looking at Sam when you were talking about <laughs> that because I actually got a scoby from her that she'd kept in the fridge and it, it <laughs> is my first I, failure. Guilty. Sorry. No, guilty. But I was given a bum steer. I, the person who gave it to me told me to do that. So I And then I dutifully... You know, handed it on to Natasha. And it was, yeah, it was not good. No, it didn't work out. <laughs> That's all right. You can you can often revitalize or revive them when they, you know, it just takes a little bit of work. And unfortunately, most people don't have that sort of confidence mm. so that they go, oh, I did that once and it failed. Yeah. And I get a lot of that from people like, oh, I made it once and it failed. It's like, do you say that about a yeah. shit cup? Oh, sorry, <laughs> a bad cup of coffee or a burnt mm. toast? No. no, you don't ever say I'm bad at that. You just keep going. So same with these things. Mm. If you've got no one there to tell you, then how would you know? Yeah. And also the person who told you to put it in the fridge, they would have been told to put it in the fridge or they read about it yes. as well. Good so. point. Mm. <laughs> well that's all we have time for i'm actually going to go home and have a go at water kefir i just got my grains in the post yesterday so i'm a little mm. bit excited mm. and the good news for me is that that is always nice for me because <laughs> natasha is a very good sharer <laughs> <laughs> there you go <laughs> if anybody listening is interested in where to get sharon's products or her books or in her fermenting workshops, you'll find all the information you need at her website, www.thefermentary.com.au. You can also find more information links and hopefully we can persuade Sharon to part with a recipe um, for us in the show. And we'll pop that up on our website at extravirginfoodandtravel.com. It's been so instructional and it's going to change the way I ferment for sure. But yeah, thank you so much, Sharon. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I'm wishing everybody good gut health and thank you for listening. Until next time, bon voyage and bon appétit. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. If you'd like to be part of the conversation, you can follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts and subscribe, rate and leave a review. 